Uh, well, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here on staff at the church. Especially, again, want to reiterate uh, what DC just said. If you're new or visiting for the first time, uh, would just want to welcome you um, and want to be make ourselves available to you if you have any questions about our community or you're wondering about how you can get plugged in uh, at Citizens. Uh, we are usually staff. Uh, myself and some of the other staff and volunteers are usually hanging around somewhere near the hospitality tent after service, so we'd love to get to know you uh, and help you get plugged in. Uh, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles um, or you're following along on a phone, if you want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Um, it's going to be on the screen behind me, but um, if you like to follow along on your phone, you can choose your translation. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And uh, what we've been doing each week uh, in the series that we're in is uh, we've been reading together verses 22 to 25. And so this is the, our last opportunity uh, to get to do that because today's the final kind of sermon in this series. And so um, we'll read it uh, in one voice together when we get to that portion. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25, this is the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. May every word that comes forth be from your heart, and may we open our ears and our own hearts to receive what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, it's hard to believe we are uh, wrapping up our series on the fruit of the Spirit today, uh, the life that the Holy Spirit produces supernaturally in us as we walk in step with Him. And we're told that this life is revealed through these nine specific attributes that are listed here at the end of Galatians 5, which we've been reading together every week. And the idea is that when we receive Christ in faith, the same God who 2,000 years ago uh, walked this earth and was the living, breathing embodiment of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, this same God now resides in us, freeing us to live the life we were always meant to live. 
And what this means is that salvation is not just about what happens after we die, but it has significant implications for how we live and experience our lives in the present. Um, Galatians 5 opens with the Apostle Paul saying, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What Paul is saying is, look, because of what Christ has done, you don't have to live in bondage anymore. You don't have to be crippled anymore by selfishness, anxiety, hopelessness, and resentment. Following Jesus is not just about being miserable in the present and looking forward to something greater that's coming, but it's a reality that we can live into today. And, and in the gospel, we're reminded that we are free today to become our full redemptive selves. And the point of this entire series has not been so that every week you come here and you have an opportunity to beat yourself up again about not being loving enough or kind enough or gentle enough or patient enough. The point of this series has actually been to offer us hope. Hope for ourselves and hope for the people in our lives who we feel like are never going to change. To offer us hope that this is our destiny as believers. That he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. That this transformation may not happen overnight. Uh, it may not happen the way we expect it to or think it will happen. But it will happen because this is what God has promised. To make us like him. Now the last fruit on this list that we're looking at today is the fruit of the spirit that is self-control. Okay, self-control just in time for the holidays, the season where everything seems to spiral out of control, right? Our spending habits out of control, okay? In a couple weeks, y'all are going to go buy something for $300 on Black Friday, and you're going to buy it. You don't even need it, but you're going to buy it because it used to be $600, and it's such a good deal, and you're going to feel so good about your purchase, but you still spent $300, right? Our anxiety and stress levels in this season, out of control. Our rage when our parents ask us first at Thanksgiving dinner and then at Christmas dinner why we're not married yet, out of control. Okay, it's a season when we just can't seem to get a grip on ourselves when we seem to lack the most self-control. And whenever we talk about self-control, it always makes people feel very uncomfortable. Okay, and it's understandable because self-control, more than any other virtue on this list, is one that breeds enormous shame or self-righteousness, depending on what side of the coin you're on. You go on social media and you will find no shortage of motivational speakers or influencers who are preaching the gospel of self-control and self-discipline, right? Who show you their eight-pack and who show you how regimented their lives are, who show you what they eat. You know, and, you know, who show you videos of themselves getting up at 4 a.m. to go running in the rain. I, I don't know why. There's this guy, David Goggins. He always shows up on my, on my Instagram algorithms, and he's always screaming at me through the screen. And, and he's always like, you know, suck it up. Do it. You know, why can't you do it? Look at anyone can do it. And I'm, I'm there sitting on my couch eating my ruffles at midnight, and I'm feeling horrible about myself. A lot of shame. Or on the flip side, you're looking at these videos and you're patting yourself on the back because you're like, I am disciplined. I'm really good at controlling my body. I'm really good at this. And you know, you're kind of like immediately judging everyone in your life who you perceive to be lazy or who you perceive to lack self-control. 
But I think it's very telling that Paul puts this one on the list right after the fruit of the Spirit, that is gentleness, right? And I, I don't know this for sure. I can't read Paul's mind. But if I were to take a guess, I'd say it's because Paul understands that there's something about the area of self-control that just inevitably is accompanied by a lack of gentleness toward ourselves and toward others. But let's be clear as we talk about this. All of us struggle with some area in our life. All of us struggle with, with something right now that we're struggling to control. For some of us, it's our emotions, right? We can't control our anger. No matter how hard we try, that person cuts us off on the road or someone disrespects us and all we see is red. You know, we have to lash out. Right? For some of us, it's food or alcohol or experiences. We don't know the definition of moderation. If it's there, we have to have it. If, it's, if the opportunity presents itself, we have to do it. For some of us, it's our screen time. Right? My screen time these days have been off the charts. Right? And these algorithms, they're, they're so good. They know me so well. It's like mukbang video and then golf mukbang video golf and i can't stop right and i just keep scrolling and you know at some point it's like two hours go by and i'm like what am i doing with my life all right for some of us it's our shopping habits we can't stop buying things right i'm gonna throw my wife under the bus here i'm sorry we have about um 22 different tongs in our house Okay, tongs, like, you know, tongs, okay? All different sizes, different colors, all serve the exact same function, um, and it's a sickness, right? <laughs> like, honestly, like, every time she goes to the store, somehow she has a supernatural ability to find the tongs, okay? They, like, call out to her, and she can't not buy the tongs, right? We have small tongs, very big tongs, you know, all, all serve the same exact function. It's a sickness. Okay, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble, but we need to help. You know, you need to help me. Okay, stop her from buying tongs. Okay, but we all have some aspect in our lives, some area of our lives that we struggle to control. Okay, and if you're like, no, I don't know if I struggle with that. I'm a pretty self-controlled person. Then it's your pride that's out of control. Okay, you also have something you struggle to control. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about self-control. 1 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. In Titus 2, Paul is talking about um, what it means to be a mature Christian, and he uses that word self-control over and over and over again. In fact, he uses it four times in just 15 verses. He's constantly making this connection between spiritual maturity and self-control. Well, what is self-control? Jerry Bridges, uh, in his book, The Fruitful Life, defines self-control as the ability to govern one's desires. And the underlying idea here is that all of us are people of desire. We all have different longings and appetites and ambitions and passions. And really, a large part of the Christian life is figuring out what are we going to do with these desires that always seem like they're at war with one another. And now there are two huge misgivings about our desire that I feel like we need to kind of dispel before we talk about self-control because I think these things have distorted our view of biblical self-control. The first misgiving is that our desires are wholly good. That our desires are wholly good. Uh, this week I saw a trailer for a new uh, Steven Spielberg movie coming out soon called The Fablemans. 
and I'm sure it's going to be an amazing movie because it's Spielberg. Uh, but there was a quote from the movie in the caption of the trailer that jumped out at me. And the quote was this, you do what your heart says you have to. You do what your heart says you have to. Now, I don't know the context of this quote, and I'm sure there, there are a lot of different situations in which this quote would be applicable. But you see, the problem with quotes like this is that it perpetuates the notion that if you want something, you absolutely should have it. That if you feel something in your heart, you should immediately act upon that feeling, that you should always follow your heart, that you should always trust yourself. And I don't need to tell you how much damage has been done by people following their heart and doing and saying everything they want to say. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we read, uh, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. He's pointing to the fact that sin has corrupted our desires so much so that the things we should want to do, we don't want to do, and the things we shouldn't want to do, we want to do. He's saying, I can't always trust that I know what's best for myself. I can't always trust that I know what's right. But I think because many of us have bought into this notion that our desires are wholly good, self-control often doesn't feel like freedom, right? This entire sermon series, we've been talking about how the fruit of the Spirit, the life in the Spirit is a life of freedom, but when we talk about self-control, it doesn't feel like freedom. We actually see it as a restriction of freedom, right? It's like, I want to be free to eat whatever I want, sleep with whoever I want, say and do whatever I want, and self-control feels like I have to deprive myself of doing the things I want to do, of what my heart desires but true freedom according to scripture is not the ability to do everything you want true freedom is the ability to resist that which you don't need okay let me say that again true freedom according to scripture is not doing everything you want it's the ability to resist that which you don't need my kids know they're not allowed to have dessert in the mornings but they still try every morning right and I could give them exactly what they want, right? And when I say no, it feels like I'm taking some freedom away from them. It feels like I'm, taking some, I'm restricting them. I'm taking something away from them. But what kind of parent would I be to let my kids do whatever they want only to have them develop unhealthy habits that years down the line could have devastating consequences for them? That's not true freedom. Talk to anybody who's ever struggled with addiction whether it's drugs, gambling, pornography, alcohol, and they will be the first to tell you that what feels so free and exciting in the beginning feels like complete enslavement by the end. It's not true freedom. God doesn't give us guidelines and boundaries in Scripture because He wants to oppress us or restrict us. He wants to protect us and free us to live the life we were always meant to live. Okay, so the first misgiving perpetuated in large part by our culture is that our desires are wholly good. But the second misgiving, I would say perpetuated in large part by the church, is that our desires are wholly bad, right? Uh, that the goal of the Christian life should be to repress our desires, to kill our feelings and longings, that we should reject any kind of ambition, that we shouldn't have fun, that we should all live like monks. Okay, many of us here grew up in purity culture, right? In the church that I grew up in, I was not allowed to be attracted to anybody. I was not allowed to talk about dating or sex. It was a wrong desire that I had to kill. 
So everything became about behavior modification. Don't do this. Don't look at that. Don't go there. Don't engage in that. And if we failed, which most of us did, there was so much shame and condemnation heaped on us. But think about the first temptation given to Jesus in the wilderness. We read about it in Matthew 4. He's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and it says he was hungry. And the enemy comes to him and says, hey, you're hungry? If you're God, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread and eat it. I always find that interesting because the first temptation you would think if Satan comes to tempt Jesus in his moment of weakness, why did he not tempt him to go kill someone or to go lie or to go cheat? He says, turn these stones into bread. You got to understand, Jesus has not been eating for 40 days and 40 nights, so he's hungry. This is not a bad desire. It is a basic human desire. If you haven't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to be hungry. So the desire itself isn't bad. What Satan is doing here is he's taking a legitimate desire and tempting Jesus to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. He's trying to get Jesus to do what Adam and Eve did, to trust themselves to fulfill a desire that only God could fulfill. You and I all long for connection. That's a good desire. It's how we were created. But sometimes we seek to fill that desire in ways which usually ends up making us feel more disconnected from God and more disconnected from others. You and I, we long for intimacy. That's a good desire. But oftentimes we seek intimacy in ways that do not honor God. We all long for security and stability. It's a good desire. But we often trust ourselves rather than God to fulfill that desire. So you see, it's not that our desires themselves are bad. So self-control is not indulging every desire. And it's not repressing every desire. It's reorienting our desires to that which is most important. Okay, let me say that again. Biblical self-control is not indulging every desire as if every desire is wholly good, and it's not repressing every desire as if every desire is wholly bad. It's reorienting our desires toward that which is most important. In 1 Corinthians 9, when the Apostle Paul talks about self-control, he uses the metaphor of an athlete in the Olympic Games, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. He says this in verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And the phrase that we just read, strict training, comes from a Greek word that means self-rule, self-control. And the idea is that athletes have to exercise an enormous amount of self-control in order to gain the prize. So they're not doing everything they want, indulging every desire, but they're also not killing their desires. They're aiming their desires at something greater, to get a crown that will last forever. Um, I was watching the Redeem Team documentary on Netflix a few weeks ago about the 2008 U.S. men's basketball team. Uh, that was essentially formed to redeem the U.S. 
um, that was once the best, at, best in the world at basketball, but had recently lost its mojo. Okay, so they put this team together, and really the documentary was pretty much a tribute to Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, right? And um, interview after interview in the documentary, you hear these players, the best players in the world, talk about Kobe's unreal work ethic and his self-discipline, right? While everyone else is out partying till 4 a.m., Kobe's in the gym, sweating. He's working out. And it, like, confused these guys because they're like, Kobe's in his prime right now. He's already won championships. Like, what, why does he need to work so hard? Why does he put his body under so much, like, strict training? Why does he do what he, do, what he does? And when you watch interviews with Kobe, you realize it's not because Kobe doesn't want to go out. It's not because Kobe doesn't want to have fun. It's that his love for the game of basketball has trumped all other loves. He has reoriented all of his desire toward the game of basketball, and that has reordered all of his other desires. Um, he has a, a short film uh, called Dear Basketball, and I think it's the perfect illustration of this. And, and let me just share an excerpt with you from that quote. This is what Kobe says. Dear Basketball, from the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. A love so deep I gave you my all, from my mind and body to my spirit and soul. As a six-year-old boy deeply in love with you, I never saw the end of the tunnel. I only saw myself running out of one, and so I ran. I ran up and down every court, after every loose ball for you. You asked for my hustle, I gave you my heart, because it came with so much more. I played through the sweat and hurt, not because challenge called me, but because you called me. I did everything for you, because that's what you do when someone makes you feel as alive as you've made me feel. I mean, that, that in and of itself would have preached this entire sermon, right? I played through the sweat and hurt, not because challenge called me, but because you called me. For Kobe, it wasn't discipline for the sake of discipline. It wasn't willpower that allowed him to do what he did. He did it for love. He found something more important to him than anything else in the world, and that love reordered all of his other desires. We have a lot of new parents in our church, and it's funny, I knew some of these parents before they were parents. And I could tell you, some of these parents would never sacrifice anything, any sleep for anything or anyone. They needed eight hours and that was it. And all of a sudden, these parents, these people who at one point love sleep more than anything else in the world, they have this child and all of a sudden I hear that they're waking up in the middle of the night every few hours changing diapers, feeding their kids. Why? It's not because their desire for sleep is gone. They still have a desire for sleep, but something more important has captivated their heart. Their desire for sleep has been reordered under something more important. We live in Los Angeles, a city where people come from all over the world to pursue their dreams. And we have a lot of aspiring actors and musicians in our community who tell you this, and many of them, I'm sure, at this moment, if they wanted, could have a cushy nine-to-five job where they don't have to worry about rent every month, where they have to worry about getting hurt because they don't have health insurance, where they have to live like day to day, not knowing what's going to happen, not being able to predict the future. And I asked them, like, why do you do what you do? 
It's not willpower for the sake of willpower. They found something that they've set their hearts on, something that has reoriented all of their other desires, and they will willingly deny themselves things that they want today for the potential for their dreams to become a reality tomorrow. They will deny themselves pleasures in the short term for, certain ple for what they want in the long term. Well, what is that supreme desire for the Apostle Paul? What is the prize that he has set his heart on in 1 Corinthians 9? And listen to what he says in uh, one passage before that in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. He says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He's saying, I'm free. I theoretically, I'm free to do what I want, but everything I do, I do it for the sake of the gospel. The one thing that has reoriented all of my desires and longings and ambitions is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm free. I have nothing more to prove. I have nothing to earn. There's nothing I need to go out and deserve. I'm completely free, but I willingly surrender my body, my mind, and my emotions to the one who surrendered everything for me. When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, nobody exercised more self-control than him. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood. And he's saying, Father, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let me do that. But he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. I know I'm free to do what I want, but I will surrender my body and my mind and my will for that which is more important. <laughs> All right, what's up? Really? Right there? Okay. Uh, well, what is, what is that? Oh, man, that just... All right. <laughs> I surrender my body, my will, and my mind to that which is most important. Well, what is it that was most important to Jesus? What was it that Jesus set his heart on? What was his, the supreme desire of his heart? What was the thing he valued more than anything else in the world? What is the thing he didn't already have? You've got to understand, Jesus was God. So he had absolutely everything. There is nothing that he didn't need. What is it that he didn't have? It was us. Jesus reoriented all of his desires toward that which was most precious to him, and it was us. He endured every kind of pain, rejection, and sorrow for us. We were the object of his greatest desire. It wasn't willpower, it was love. 
there is nothing in this world that is more transformative than love. Love will make you do some crazy things. Do you know how to get self-control? You set your heart on the one who has set his heart on you. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy, for the love set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we make Jesus the supreme desire of our heart, the easier it will be to throw off everything else that entangles us, that gets in the way of our relationship with him. The secret to self-control is not willpower or more discipline or sucking it up or mustering up our own strength. The secret to self-control is love. Well, let's get practical. How do we cultivate more of this love that leads to self-control in our lives? How do we make Jesus the supreme desire of our hearts? And it really comes down to taking inventory of three things. Our health, our habits, and our home. Okay? Our health, our habits, and our home. First, our health. What do I mean by that? Often when we struggle with self-control, it's not the behaviors that are the problem. Okay? That's, 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 that's an issue that a lot of us have. Right? When we struggle to control an area of our lives or when we have a habit that we can't control or an addiction, we automatically point to the behavior. But often the behaviors are just symptoms, symptoms of something deeper going on underneath the surface. There are warning lights that tell us we're not 100%. We're not fully physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy. We're tired, we're burnt out, we're lonely, we're hurt, we're angry, and we have to learn how to name these issues at a root level, or else all we will do is continue to modify behavior and have those problems show up in other areas of our lives. Right? Like, I know when my screen time is getting out of hand, there's something deeper going on that, that I have to address. Right? There's something I'm using that screen time to distract me from. Right? And if I keep thinking just that screen time is the problem, I will just get rid of that and then have that, whatever that thing is, show up in some other area of my life, right? And we have to learn how to name what those things are and bring them to God honestly and openly because usually those things point to some longing or need that we feel like is not being met. And when we take it to God, we create space for God to meet that need in a way that only he can, okay? So number one, pay attention to your health. Okay, number two, pay attention to your habits. Jamie Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, says that our habits form our loves. Contrary to popular belief, we do not just fall in love with something or someone out of the blue. We are habituated to love certain things and not love others. Love takes practice. Okay, you do not just wake up one day and love healthy food. Okay, I've tried it. I can't do it. Okay, you, it, it's, it's disgusting to me, okay? Um, you do not wake up one day and it just happens out of nowhere. It takes practice. But people who live extremely healthy lives and have extremely healthy nutrition will tell you 
that when you eat, continue to practice eating healthy. The more you eat healthy, the more you actually grow to love healthy foods, and the more you lose your desire to eat unhealthy. Okay, so we need to regularly take inventory of our habits. What are your habits forming you to love? Are your habits forming you more into the likeness of Jesus, or are they forming you to look like something else? Look at a person's rhythms and routines, and you will know what that person loves and values. Right? If the majority of your week is spent on social media, then your heart will inevitably be formed in its image. You will value the things that social media values, that people on social media values. If all your time is devoted to consuming podcasts and books and articles about politics, you are being formed to place politics above all things, and that will order all of your other desires. And again, this is not so that we can beat ourselves up or feel bad about ourselves. It's so that we can take intentional steps to cultivate new rhythms and new habits that reform us. It's not just about taking something out. It's about replacing our old habits with new ones that point our affections and desires toward Jesus as the ultimate end of our existence. Okay, because we become what we behold. We inevitably become what we set our hearts on. And this is going to take time. And, and, but, but everything that is important does. So even if you start small, encourage you. Take five minutes a day. Replace five minutes of whatever it is with five minutes of spending time with Jesus. In his word and prayer and silence and solitude. Simply resting in him. Right? Not in a legalistic way to earn God's favor, but out of the love you've already received in Christ. And the more, more we make room for the Spirit, and the more we experience God's unconditional love for us, and see His beauty, His worth, and His character, the more we will grow to love Him, and the more we will see our lives begin to transform. So first, take inventory of your health, take inventory of your habits, and finally, take inventory of your home. And I mean this in a figurative sense. Who are you doing life with? And what kind of an environment are you creating for yourself? There is nothing that will have a more profound impact on your life than the people you surround yourself with. Are you surrounding yourself with people who are constantly pointing you to the love of Jesus? Who constantly point you to the most important thing? Or are you surrounding yourself with people who encourage you to orient your desires around lesser alternatives? You know, accountability has become such a dirty word in our culture and the church because accountability has become all about just policing behavior, right? It's telling people what they're doing wrong, which again, misses the point. When the Bible talks about accountability, it's talking about surrounding yourself with people who embody the love of Christ to you in word and deed. People willing to come alongside you to encourage you when you need encouragement people who, come, who, who are willing to carry you when you can't carry yourself, people who are willing to say the hard things to you that nobody else will say. And this is where community is so important because in connecting ourselves to others who are on the same journey, we are creating an environment that allows us to more readily access the resources that are freely available to us in the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, this doesn't mean we're not going to fail, okay? especially with self-control. You're going to leave this place and be taking a right out of the parking lot. Someone's going to cut you off and you're going to lose control. Okay, we're going to fail. 
But when that happens, may your first thought not be one of shame, but may you use that opportunity to throw yourself again on the grace of God. Whereas self-control in our culture is all about sucking it up, trying harder, and taking control of your mind, body, and will, the way of Jesus is not about taking control. It's about surrender. It's about resting on the grace of God and allowing Jesus to take control of you. Philippians 3, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Friends, if there's an area in your life that you're struggling to control, I want you to know today that there's so much grace for you. Simply let God know that you're struggling with this area of your life and ask the Holy Spirit to help you, knowing that there's nothing you could do to separate you from the love of God in Christ. You're secure, you're accepted, you're beloved. Let's pray. I want us just to take a moment um, as our worship team comes up. Take a moment and reflect on an area of your life uh, that you struggle to control or that you feel right now is out of control. Whether it's certain thought patterns, certain habits, your emotions. And I want to give us an opportunity to bring those things to God. To be honest in saying, I struggle with this. And in this moment, may we hear the voice of God saying, there's grace for you. I love you. And if you trust me, I will transform you. You can be free. And let's just sit in that love for just a moment. Holy Spirit, we come to you weak and broken, confessing and acknowledging that there are areas of our lives that we struggle to control. Almost just, we're, as the Apostle Paul says, we, we don't know why we do the things we do. We bring those things to you and lay them at your feet, and we ask for your help. 
Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to want you. Help us uh, to long for you, to make you the supreme desire of our hearts. Help us to see and help us to set our hearts on the one who has set his heart on us. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in all of our hearts the heart of King David, who says, one thing I ask, this one thing I desire, to gaze at your beauty, to seek you all the days of my life. I pray that that would be our prayer. You would help us to want you more than anything else in the world. And in this moment, I pray that all of us would be able to experience again your love, your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.